back into Mark. Short passage here, Mark 10, verses 13 through 16. It says, people were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. But the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them, and blessed them. This is the word of the Lord. You may grab a seat. Look at us making our long, slow return back to the Gospel of Mark. You've been with us uh, the past couple years. We've been in Mark for a long time. I don't know how long it's been now, but it's been a long time, going verse by verse and just taking moments here and there to branch off when uh, the Gospel comes across a really important, uh, vital subject for us, a, a core value of ours, or a potential controversial subject. So uh, we're on the road now behind Jesus to the cross. He introduced uh, in Mark 8 that his whole vision for his ministry, his aim and goal was to go to Jerusalem to be put to death on a cross and to be raised from the dead. And then he turned to his disciples and said, and you too, if you are going to be with me, you're going to get behind me and you're going to walk to the cross with me. And that the only way that we will take hold of and, and embrace and experience the life that Jesus gives us and the gift that he gives us is if we take up our cross behind him. That is the prerequisite to entering into life with Jesus is taking up our cross and following him. And so all of Mark from now on, from Mark 8 on, is about that. And it's all the more so in the season of Lent as we are preparing along with Jesus for the cross to receive what only Jesus can give us uh, through the cross and resurrection. So as we're in this passage about um, Jesus receiving the children, when I read a passage, I'm, all, like, I'm always looking at what gives me a sense of tension. Where is there tension? Where does it seem like, man, that really piques my curiosity? And for me this week, it's in verse 15. When Jesus says, truly I tell you, that's like an emphasis. Like what I'm saying to you right now is like ex extreme truth. Anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. So I'm struck by when, because Jesus is so radically inclusive, anyone can come to him at all times. Extremely welcoming. He almost has no boundary. You can come right in. Anytime Jesus is going to be like, never in this case. That kind of striking, right? It kind of like disrupts what we expect Jesus to do. So he's saying, if you don't have this posture like a child, you cannot, will never enter it. And it's like an extreme negative. In the Greek, it's like extra negatives. It's like will not, no way, never. So that is, feels pretty striking and extreme to me. And it's not even really a command. He's just describing reality. If you are not like a child in receiving the kingdom, you will not enter it. He's just stating a fact. He's describing factual existence. This is how life works in God's world. And so I'm really struck by that. And the questions that come to mind as I experience this tension is the first one is, in what way are we supposed to receive the kingdom of God like a little child? Because that could be, that's a simile. I was going to say metaphor, but if you take English in high school, they'd tell you that like or as would tell you that it's a simile. That could go a lot of different directions. Like, in what way are we supposed to be like a child? Like ch children are, have lots of qualities. What are we supposed to be like them? Why is that thing so important that it's a prerequisite to enter the kingdom? And how can this whole thing be good news for everyone? And so let's take these questions away. Receive the kingdom of God like a little child in what way? Think about little children, all that they are, the characteristics. What characteristic do you think Jesus might be talking about here? I think our culture has can have this weird, like, strange fascination with children. 
the psychology and development of children, high interests, also some signs of not totally embracing children either, but we may obsess over their development and their character and what makes a child so unique. And so I'm wondering what we've come to mind. Maybe it's childlike innocence. You know, child children just uh, have, are, have an innocent spirit about them. I remember when Jada was maybe five or six, uh, Graham is very curious. He wants to know way more things than he should know. My daughter Jada is, would prefer not to know bad news. And so sometimes at the table, bad news may come up at dinner that we share bad news in the world. She's like, I thought I told you not to tell me any more bad things. She's trying to get through life and not hear any bad stories. And that's really attractive in children. They don't know evil. But whatever metaphor that Jesus would describe here, I think that he would want, it's something that he would want us to have for life in the kingdom. And I don't think innocence is something that Jesus wouldn't call us into for life in the kingdom. Innocent of evil, sure. But Jesus, God is a God who gets his hands dirty. He's, he's into an evil world and lets himself kind of be caught up in that as he pulls us out. And he calls us to that level of incarnational ministry as well. We're engaging in, in heavy, tense spiritual warfare. That's what life in the kingdom's like. And that kind of life, I don't think, is long-term innocence. Maybe it's ignorance. It's kind of cute sometimes when kids just don't know anything. And there's sometimes a thought of like, if I know things as a faithful person, that may mean it's not really like faith. So I should have childlike faith by purposely like, not using the brain God's given me to like become smart. There's a big study about this in the 90s uh, by a writer named Mark Knoll who called, uh, wrote a book called The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind. This church would be in the tradition of the evangelical church, and he describes how the evangelical mind is, the scandal of it is there is no evangelical mind. We come from a history that has tried to deny science and deny history and not use our God-given brains to really engage in the full life that he's given us with intelligence and investment, and the scriptures are filled with very thoughtful uh, smart people, and the, our church history from the beginning, uh, Christians have been advancing in knowledge, and that's been a good thing when it's sacrificed for the kingdom. So I don't think it's about ignorance either. Maybe it's childlike immaturity, that, you know, children are playful, they have a lot of fun, good. I think God has a sense of humor as long as you read the uh, scriptures and there's funny moments in there. Um, and I think God is for laughter and humor, but not so much a life of unseriousness, that our life as human beings carries a lot of weight, and to have just immaturity at all times, it can't be just like fun games that you've grouped our whole life, right? It's about maturing to the full stature of Christ. It costs something. And there's a seriousness and a weightiness to our existence. And then finally, maybe it's an absence of responsibility. One of the best things about being a child is that nothing's on your back. Like, my kids can't wait to get older. I'm like, why? You don't have to care about anything, man. Like, you just wander through life and just know, like, huh, I wonder what my parents are going to feed me today. Who knows how they'll pay the bills, but I don't think about it. And yet, uh, I think God calls us to the responsibility of bearing each other's burdens, of taking up our cross, of being a part of a life of mission that takes significance. So I don't think it's that one either. What is the thing like a child that the New Testament want to emphasize? I think it is humble dependence. Children in the Jewish world were seen as such a blessing and a value for sure. I mean, they were a sign of the covenantal promises of God coming to fruition. They were supposed to have children, preserve God's people on the way to a Messiah being born from them. So they were highly valued, yet children were not seen to have any kind of leverage. No social capital, no social power, no say. Their life is not in their hands. They are open-handed, and they have no claim on anyone. They're valued, and the Psalms are seen as a gift of the Lord, but they are not seen to have any extra kind of rights. They don't carry responsibility. They have no sense of leverage. 
You can even see this in this passage. They are being acted upon. We are bringing the little children. They cannot bring themselves. They are being brought. They almost have limited agency. They just tag along. And they, the only action they are capable of doing is what children are really good at, receiving stuff. Yeah, I'm here to give, receive some gifts. Children are like experts at gift receiving because they're vulnerable and they're dependent. They have no claim. And I think that's the emphasis of this. Sure, childlike humor and wonder, childlike innocence and to a degree ignorance, but the main emphasis in the New Testament about the children that God would want us to embrace is that of dependence. And this is what I want to show you is the posture that is start to finish how the Christian life works and that we carry no matter how mature we get in the faith, childlike, humble, vulnerable, frail, open-handed dependence is, I think, what, God, what Jesus is after here. Now, I think that gets to that next question, is how is it the case that you say, you have to have this? You cannot be in my kingdom unless you have that posture of humble dependence. Why is that such a deal breaker? That literally you can't have it. And he's just describing it. He's not commanding, you must. He's just saying, like, in the kingdom, you can't enter if you are not receiving it like a humble, vulnerable, no leverage having dependent child. That's because in the kingdom of God, there can only be one king. We don't live in a, a, a culture that has a monarchy anymore where this one king has absolute say over everything and just dominates, but they would be familiar with that world. I mean, Jewish people in that time are occupied by Rome. In Rome, what Caesar says goes, and they are under his authority, and so they are familiar with that language of the kingdom of God. So what is the kingdom of God? It's not about heaven, per se. The kingdom of God is the sphere where what God wants to happen happens all the time, where what God wants happens. So in heaven... Yeah, there is no space in heaven where what God wants to happen is not happening. What God wants to happen happens. What he, his will is done at all times. There's no resistance to it. But he has made a world where humans have the agency to resist him. They don't have to choose what God wants to do. But Jesus has made a way for us to enter back into the sphere in which what he says goes. But the key to that is you have to give up your leverage your sense of autonomous freedom, you having claim or say over anything, you're holding on to some, some peace. Because if you hold on to some piece of your life and like, well, Jesus can have most of this, but not this thing right here, well, now he's not king there. And if he's not king there, then he's not king anywhere in you, and you're out. It's not so much he's saying, I don't want you to be here. It's like, man, if it's for children who have nothing to offer other than dependence, Anybody can come in. Man, that's already the beginning of the good news piece is like anyone can have that. You don't have to be well-learned. You have to be well-trained. We don't need to teach you how to be a dependent person. That's just I will either empty myself and have no leverage or I will think that I have some level of claim that God is a peer of mine. Sure, the Bible has plenty of examples of God encouraging honesty. Sure, cry out and be frank. God, we need this. We're frustrated with you. But the thought that those feelings give me a sense of leverage, that I'm able, like I'm a peer with God, can't be. There can only be one king in God's kingdom. And so if we enter in thinking that I have some leverage, we, he's like, well, that's not how things work here. He's not, and it's like, 
this would be fitting for telling a child. So you don't have to tell a child like a command. It's like, this is just reality, man. Welcome to the world. This is how the world works. And Jesus is saying, this is my world. You're living in it, and this is how my world works, where you get to be in my kingdom. Anyone can come. The only deal is, in this kingdom, I'm king. So if you are cool with that, and you're willing to let go, come on in and receive the blessing. But that can feel quite painful. I mean, I think it's no, no secret that in both Matthew's gospel and Mark's gospel, this little ditty on the children right here is snug between two tremendous idols in the world and, and that culture then and our culture now. His previous teaching was the one we just said in for a long time, our marriage and divorce. And someone you would think for sure would be in the kingdom in the ancient world, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, everyone looked up to them. They also had a lot of illegitimate divorces in Jesus' mind. And so they're asking them to bless their choice of those divorces. And Jesus is like, no, those are kind of invalid. Are they hanging on to a little space? It's going to make them hard to receive Jesus' words. The narrative would show that it did. Right after this passage is the rich young ruler passage where he thinks he's good. And in the, that ancient world, first century Jewish world, if you're a rich person that generally abided by the law, you'd be seen as like top of the food chain of the kingdom. Jesus is like, hey, man, you're on a great track. you got to let go of that money if you want to enter my kingdom. And the, the rich young ruler, having encountered the kingdom of God, the king of, in the flesh, walked away grieving and said no thanks. Both of those people, the Pharisees that were leaders that you would think would be in, and the rich law-abiding Jew who you think would be in, both had a space in their lives that they expected Jesus to validate. He did not, and they seemed to miss out on the kingdom. So even though it's so easy, we are just receiving, it seems to be a tremendous threat against the human need for saying it on, defining re reality on our own terms. Defining what good and wrong is, defining what's right and wrong, who is good for me, that sense of autonomous freedom, which our culture is very drunk on at the moment and has been for a long time, uh, it doesn't have much space in the kingdom. So that sounds pretty challenging, and that makes me wonder how this can be good news. How is this gospel? How is this freeing? How does that sound good to say, you get Jesus, but your freedom's gone, you got no leverage, you have no claim, this is a total loss, a total surrender. Does he take over my very self? Where is the good news here? And look at your boy using graphics, man. I want to show you that this is freedom from the cycle that the free person's on. And our culture, the, the person that says, I want claim over myself, I get to define myself, I exist on my own. And no community, no tradition, no scripture, no God is going to kind of, they need to be on my terms. But this puts you in this terrible cycle of self-rejection and self-exaltation. Sometimes you experience it in the same time. This is the, 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 the freedom of the autonomous self. Because when you don't submit or surrender to God, you're forced to find something or someone else to give you some degree of identity, of your worth, of your security, some sense of belonging and love, some sense of community and family, being significant in this world, making my life matter and have meaning. And so everyone's actually after that chase, but they want to do it freely and autonomously on their terms. And so our culture is filled with things that are marketed and lots of things available and different kinds of opportunities and ways to be on this self-optimization track. I'm going to go explore myself, and then because I'm a blank slate, and once I find what that is, 
I get this freedom in my culture to go find it. But I do that at the expense of deep relationship that will put a bounding on that freedom. Anyone that has deep, deep friendship, your freedom gets taken over for that. If you insist on your freedom all the time, you lose that friendship. And when it comes to meaning and significance, you have to give yourself over to something. You lose something. There's a sacrifice there, a loss of freedom to chase after a sense of meaning and significance. But all these options that our culture gives us to pursue meaning and community and significance and value and happiness, whatever word you want to use for like a flourishing full life, they're all inherently frail. They're not very secure. You think you got a hold of it, and it falls through your hands like sand. And so the self-exaltation happens when it seems to go well. You set a track, you set a plan, you conquer your plan, and you share it to your followers on social media, and you get praise heaped on you. And like, look at that person who's so good at optimizing in the right way in our culture. And everyone else is jealous and feels defeated. Then that same person, though, will feel insecure because they know that their body's going to waste away. They no longer will have the image that can be projected on Instagram. Your career is, you think it's going one way, and then a pandemic happens, and like, whoops, no, not so much anymore. And like, you then quickly lose that thing was, that was giving you so much happiness and flourishing and fulfillment and value. And so you go into self-rejection. And you can do this with anything. People, Christians even do this, a life of being the best Christian. It's not so much born out of humbly receiving from Jesus. It's I'm becoming the best Christian ever. And you think it's going well, and that gives you a source of pride and arrogance. I think the Jewish Pharisees in the first century that Jesus interacted with kind of battled with that. But then, if you've been in that life, you sin, you mess up, you fail, you fall short, someone challenges you and it breaks you, and you go into self-rejection, and you feel defeated. And so if we have a life apart from submitting to God with the whole self and insist on some leverage that we keep it, it can feel so freeing. But man, we drown in that freedom. A culture is so free, yet lacks loneliness and belonging, or has loneliness, they lack belonging, we lack a sense of direction. People are flailing and floating with no true story to captivate our hearts and get us off this track. But instead of this cycle, this story and this passage has a kind of both and at the same time. We're totally broken down, humbled, but totally built up. You are little children with no leverage. You have no claim, no say, no rights on your own, no freedom on your own. But look how much you're built up. The Lord of the universe welcomes you to come to him without being hindered at all. You get, you, the kingdom of God belongs to you. The children that you wouldn't think have any leverage, somehow the one singular prerequisite of humble dependence makes the kingdom of God belong to them. They take possession of it now. They get to receive that kingdom. And then look, I love these words at the end of verse 16. He takes the children in his arms. They humble depend, and he embraces them places his hands on them, and declares a blessing over them. It starts with an absolute humble dependence into the ground, total loss of freedom and claim over anything. But that same moment of humility with no gap, there's not a space, you stay low over there, rejected, and then maybe down the road you get embraced. It's like the second the lowering humility happens, the king of the universe takes you, and embraces you, 
and places hands on you and blesses you, declared over you that you are a child of God who's received his kingdom. You are partaking in now his future. And that puts us on a different track. There's no spike. There's no spiral. It doesn't change. It is one and the same at all times. Totally humbled, totally built up, totally surrendered, totally edified, total absence of leverage, but filled up to the max. And you end up getting all the things that we are chasing with our freedom anyways. Hungering for meaning and significance. You were given that. You are now in partnership to participate with the king of the universe on his grand plan to restore the world, and you get it permanently. You want belonging? You you say, I want my freedom, but I want someone to love me and know me. Welcome to God's kingdom where the king of the universe knows everything about you, your worst parts about you, the things about you that you're most ashamed about, and yet has fully embraced you permanently, immediately, without changes. Fully known, fully loved, full meaning and significance, all at the same time. Totally humbled, totally built up. And it's permanent. There's no changes. You have a good day, you're still humbled. You have a bad day, you're still built up. There's no shifting that guilt and shame just wrecks you. You are on a track that even in a world that feels chaotic and unstable, friends could leave you, people that love you could die, you could lose your job, things that could go wrong, all the things that could go wrong will go wrong, and yet you are still humbled and built up by the king of the universe. This has been the story from the beginning. This is the only way to exist in God's world. In the beginning, God made. Those are the first words of the Bible. And that already tells you everything coming after those dots is not necessary. The existence of you, of me, and anybody and anything in the world is only by virtue because God feels like he wants you to exist. He didn't need any of us. He was content on his own. He just created out of love and beauty and creativity. And voila, you are now here. And so there is a sense of humbling there, and he makes us in his image. And I think this image of God is at once totally humbled and totally built up. As an image, that's just like a reflection. Like you are merely a reflection. You have no kind of self-existence. It's not like, oh, I've spawned and now I'm all alone, freed of any claim on the outside. You are merely a reflection of the king who made the world. But you are a reflection of the king who made the world. You're not just any old reflection. So your existence is not in and of itself alone. You are a mirrored reflection into this world, but a reflection of God. So you're humbled in that you have no claim apart from God, but you're built up because you are God's crown of creation. Humanity, you. The crown of all creation is you and me, bearing God's image, totally humbled, totally built up. Totally humble, totally built up. What are you made from? The dust of the ground. God scraped up some dirt, but then had no life into it, breathes his spirit into you, and now you are filled with the spirit of God given life. You are totally humble that you exist as nothing but dust, but absolutely built up because the spirit of the living God gives you life and was meant to keep them alive forever until they said, nah, but we'll take it our way. You told us one rule. We would prefer to make our own rule. They knew good and evil and that they laid claim on what was good and evil. They got to define good and evil on their terms because they wanted to be autonomous human beings. And God says, but you were dust, and so to dust you will return. 
This is the last phrase of the curse that God gives over creation because sin is broken in. He withdraws his life-giving spirit, and now you are but dust. And fast forward through the Old Testament, which continues to emphasize this point, and we get to then our redemption. So we are created in a way that humbles us, yet builds us up. And then when things go awry because of humanity's choice, God enters the world again, demonstrates his love for us, but that while we were still sinners, totally humbled, we had no claim over God, no leverage. He died for us. And I have that creatively with yellow and blue to emphasize that when he died for us, it's saying we are so bad off that the king of the universe had to die for us via the cross, like the most brutal, torturous, shameful death, lowered, humbled, but so loved that God was glad to die for us, totally embraced. The cross does both at the same time. There's no gap. The very instrument and moment that holds a mirror up to our weakness and evil, our absence of leverage that we have no claim, is literally the same image and moment that says you are totally embraced by a God who loves you dearly. Totally humbled, totally built up. There's no room for shame and guilt anymore. There's no room for self-exaltation and arrogance anymore either. And then you end up having this statement that Paul says that is associated with anyone who's been baptized. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. That's what happens when you get dunked. I give up my leverage. No more leverage, no more pride, no more claim over my life anymore. No more claim over the world. But who gets to live in me now when I die? The resurrected Jesus enters into my body and gives me life and lives in me. And so now I do live by faith in the Son of God. I get to still live and thrive and flourish, but totally humble because I got no claim over this life anymore. My life is not my own. It's released. Yet it's in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Little children, humbled and dependent, who are took, taken in the arms, embraced, blessed, and touched by the king. Who loved me and gave himself up for me. You got to give it all up, though. Can't hold on. It's my whole self has been crucified with Christ. I don't get to be dunked with a hand sticking out. I remember there was a, a story in the early church, though, when Christians started wanting to uh, commit to being violent and engage in war, they would get dunked with their swords still hanging out of the water as almost a sign of like, I, you can have my whole self, but I will still keep the sword to be participating in a violent world. They're missing the boat, man. Totally humbled. You baptize and letting that sword go. Totally built up coming out of the water. We now get his spirit. You as Christians who have died with Christ and raised again, your bodies are now the physical space in this world where heaven and earth interlock. God is everywhere. He sees all things, but he takes up residence and a new life-giving way inside the bodies that have been made holy by his blood. And so your body now is a, 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 the, the dwelling place of God's spirit, whom you have received from God. You have it in full, but he is merely given to you as a gift. So now, totally humble, you are not your own, which is now a challenge and a warning. You don't have any claim anymore. But yet you were bought at a price. The price of the king of the universe dying on a cross has affirmed your value and your identity. There's no guilt and shame. You're worthless. Or none of that. But you are humble to know that we only, have the temp we only have the spirit living within us because Jesus has died for us and bought our lives anew with the price of his death. You are torn down. There is no claim or leverage, no pride. You have no reason to boast any longer. 
There's nothing to claim hold of as like I am my own and I get to rule my life. You've given it up. You are not your own. You don't get to decide anything anymore. Your life is now whatever Jesus wants, I will give him. You were bought at a price, though. Again, so in a, in, a, in a hopeless position that the only way to get rescued out of that hopelessness was the maker of the universe breaking into this world to give you new life again. But he was glad to do it. He did not do it in anger. He wasn't like, oh, these people are frustrating me. He did it with gladness and gratitude because he loves you. He does not want his life, his, his, his world to go on in an in a, in a, a eternal party without you being a part of it. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. And then the very last chapter of the Bible makes this point too. This is in the last verses. This is Jesus talking. Look, I'm coming soon. My reward is with me. He's about to give a full life of eternal heaven with no pain and no more tears, no nothing. And he says, oh, I will give to each person according to what they are done, what they've done. That there is a creator, which means there is a design and purpose for this world which means there is a way to be in line with that creator's design and purpose, which means there is accountability to our willingness to surrender to how he's made us. From the very beginning, we are but dust, but dust that has been given a valuable life through the spirit breathing into our bones, a life that is made in his image, a life he was glad to pursue to the end, a life that he was glad to die for in order to rescue us, and if we are then receive this washing, blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates of the, into the city. We are now participating in Eden restored. The full potential of Eden come back where now we are but dust that was going into the ground with death now gets the spirit breathed into our bones again. Not because of what we have done by the quality or quantity or purity of our Christian behavior, but by our willingness to surrender, to be washed clean by the blood of Jesus, to say, I surrender. This is not my world that I get to live in. I'm not claiming any of it. I'm surrendering to Jesus. Jesus, what you want to want, you get. To that person that does that, which doesn't have a long time, there's nothing to train for, it's either I'm one to exist holding on to stuff or I'm letting go to let Jesus rule my life. And to that person, you get to go renewed access to Eden fulfilled. So this is where we end. This is where actually where we start and end. Our whole life is we surrender our whole selves and God does the heavy lifting to build us up. All of our primary actions as Christians are those of self-emptying. We enter with baptism that has to be done to ourselves. We don't do it. This is not something we accomplish. It is a gift that we receive from God for our whole selves to be made new and immediately brought into his kingdom. The actions, the primary actions we do of worship, of prayer, of reading scripture, those are emptying actions. Those aren't conquering actions. We aren't like laying hold of the world. They are acts of surrender. We open our hands up and we say, God, what you want to want happens. It's not happened perfectly. You will struggle. Struggle's good. Struggle's a sign of repentance. It's the self-assuring, self-justifying, unrepentant, I will do things I want. I can never believe a God who blank, that kind of language, we'd be done with that. I release my whole self and I believe in the kind of God that is God. <laughs> it's his world and I will relinquish to him. And then he does the heavy lifting. He does the character formation. I don't have to self-optimize to become the greatest person ever. 
I surrender to the Spirit, and the Spirit does the heavy lifting to bear fruit in my life. I don't have to conquer the world and be like the best Christian and make a and do this big movement and have it. No, I surrender. It's God's world. It's God's life. I don't lay claim. He's given me our full value. He does the heavy lifting to change a heart, to change a person, to change a community, to change the world. We surrender our whole selves to be totally humbled, but then God permanently and repetitively builds us back up by the blood of Jesus. Let's pray.